I realized that power was like a Russian nesting doll. Each time I opened one kind of power, I found another kind inside. When I opened electrical power, I discovered political power. When I opened political power, I discovered corporate power. Within corporate was consumer. Within consumer was civic. Within civic was religious. And so on. One type of power enabling the next. For his book, American Power, the photographer Mitch Epstein traversed the United States documenting America's relationship with energy. His project has a wide scope. Power lines divide landscapes, nuclear power plants tower over football fields, armed security guards patrol disaster sites and factories, objects that signify our everyday relationship to energy, like cars and consumer goods, they show up as well in various states of use and disrepair. What I tried to do was to largely um, see to it that there was some kind of critical punctuating reference in each individual picture um, to either the production or consumption of energy. The project began when the New York Times sent Mitch Epstein out on an assignment. I photographed in Cheshire, Ohio in 2003, early 2004, looking at the relationship of a small township uh, that sat on the Ohio River um, that, uh, that was very impacted by its uh, physical relationship uh, to a very large coal-fired power plant owned by American Electric Power. American Electric Power bought the town out, paid all the residents off to um, take over their houses because of the threat of environmental contamination lawsuits. I was moved and pulled into the lives of the handful of renegades, the individuals that remained, that refused to sell. Their stories resonated and remained with me. One of my favorite images in the book comes from this photo shoot. One of these renegades, an older woman with nice lacy window curtains, cradles a gun as she poses with the security cameras she has pointed at her window. A good many of Mitch Epstein's photos reference security. There are a number of chilling portraits of armed security personnel guarding our nation's infrastructure of power. And there's an explicit confrontational attitude in many of these individuals. It's like we're not supposed to be looking this closely. As I began to think in broader ways about the meaning of our relationship to energy, security became a kind of very uh, critical secondary theme because I faced it everywhere I went. People kept telling me, you can't make pictures here. You're looking at infrastructure. This is not allowed. You're, you're going to be endangering the lives of the people who are working in this power plant, who are living in this place. You're trespassing. You're from New York. You should ask before you set your camera up. Mitch Epstein says he planned his trips so that he could visit both important landmarks of American power, but still have enough time to wander around. And in the book, we witness a lot of absurdity and humor, both hallmarks of his style, like the gas pump that displays the phrase terror-free oil. And then there's one of my favorites. An oil tanker is in the background while a topless, overweight fisherman lounges on the beach in the foreground. I had gone there to look at St. Lucie, where there's a nuclear power plant. 
Um, so about 10 miles away in Fort Pierce, all the beaches had been completely uh, leveled uh, during, um, I think it was Hurricane Jean and Francis uh, in 2004. So there were these, uh, this New York company who was dredging back all the sand to rebuild the beaches. It's a tourist place. And here I was just struck by the absurdity of this restoration in part. There was uh, two men fishing, one somewhat um, obese, smoking a cigarette. Uh, He's not even holding his fishing pole. It's tied up to a uh, barbecue. Um, But then this weird um, picket fence with barbed wire, but it's not really protecting anything. It's just sort of sitting out there. Uh, It's uh, such an odd conjunction. Now, I'm personally of the mind that America probably won't be able to pull out of this head-on collision with disaster. But Mitch Epstein, he sees things differently. He still sees the possibility for transformation, even when he's photographing the Alaskan pipeline. I went to Alaska to look at and and to photograph the Alaskan pipeline. This was a extraordinary project, the building of the Alaska pipeline that occurred during my lifetime. Now um, much of the oil is depleted. And somehow, though, there was a very unnerving relationship though, between this pipeline that, you know, that goes above ground um, and then it, you know, once it leaves the permafrost, it goes underground again. And I did find this one intersection where um, the pipe is penetrating in the ground um, and was able to photograph it in a way where that act of penetration um, is heightened. Uh, where you can feel it, uh, the, the, the whole tactile quality of the way in which pipe meets earth. Um, and, you know, in this otherwise very kind of idyllic, beautiful, um, very lush uh, Alaskan mountain um, landscapes, the landscape has the opportunity to renew itself, and nature, therefore, has the opportunity to renew itself, and even our um, relationship to the landscape um, has the chance to, uh, to, to, to reposition itself. Not in a literal prescriptive way, but it is that power and that potential for renewal that in some way does provide a glimmer um, of hope. I began making these pictures with the idea that an artist lives outside the nesting doll and simply opens and examines it. But now, while America teeters between collapse and transformation, I see it differently. As an artist, I sit outside, but also within, exerting my own power. It's a small fish that's about between 6 and 10 centimetres long and it's got distinctive blue and yellow coloration. And the thing that's really noticeable about the fish is that it lives in what we call cleaning stations. So it holds small territories where all the other fish that live on the reef come to visit to get a cleaning service. They're what we call professional cleaners. The cleaner ross is an incredibly fascinating fish, 
One dominant male, along with a dozen or so females in his harem, run these little cleaning stations, or coral reef spas. The cleaner fish eats the ocean junk, exoparasites, that collect on the skin of its client. Dr. Nicola Rahini of the Zoological Society of London is an evolutionary biologist who studies the Ross. Cleaner fish, when they're cleaning clients, they can do one of two things. They can either remove exoparasites, which is the thing that the clients want them to do, or they can eat mucus, which the cleaner fish find really delicious, but is very bad for the clients because that's the living tissue of the client. And you know that um, mucus feeding seems to cause the clients pain because when we see the cleaner fish bite the client and take a bite of mucus, we really see that the cleaner fish um, visibly jolts when that happens. So they, they really have a, a reaction to this biting by the cleaner fish. So what Dr. Rahini is really studying is animal cooperation. And what interests her about the cleaner fish is that the male will often team up with the largest female in his harem to clean off a client. And in studying their cooperation, she's discovered something about power and how it works. And so what we kind of expect is that um, in a in a, in a pairwise cleaning situation, when a male and a female work together to clean the same client, you almost um, intuitively expect that the client will receive a much worse service because um, both of the cleaners will be tempted to try and uh, cheat or bite the client before the partner does so. And in actual fact, what we see in reality is completely the opposite pattern. So when clients are cleaned by pair, pairs of cleaner fish, they actually receive a much better service than when they are inspected by single cleaner fish. And what we found last year was that um, the, the increase in service quality, that when, when a client is, is serviced by two cleaners rather than one cleaner, is driven entirely by an improvement in the female cleaner fish's behaviour. So basically, if a female is cleaning together with a male to clean one client, the female is much more cooperative than she would be if she was cleaning alone. And the basis for that improvement in female behaviour is actually um, male punishment. So what we've what we've shown before is that um, if the female cheats during a joint inspection of a client and then the client leaves in response to that female cheating, the male is actually very aggressive to the female, so um, he'll chase her around and you do often see that the female's got chunks missing out of her tail. And then the next time that um, the male and the female work together on a client, the female is much more cooperative. Male aggression seems to depend on um, how big the female is relative to the male. And so what we found is that when the female is close in size to the male, the male is much more aggressive if she cheats than when the female is much smaller. And we think that the reason for that is because the um, female cleaner fish can turn into males if they outgrow the current resident resident male on the territory. Every cleaner wrasse that's born is born a female and females only get to turn into males if they are the biggest fish on the territory. And so from the male's point of view, a female that's quite close in size to him, that's also obtaining more nutritional benefits than him during cleaning interactions, 
is potentially a major problem because she might stop being his female breeding partner and instead become a reproductive competitor if she is able to outgrow him and change sex. So in the cleaner fish, um, males are clearly dominant females, they're always larger than the female partner. The male can punish the female but the female can never punish the male for cheating. So the female is completely subordinate um, to the male in that relationship. And that's part of what makes punishment such an efficient mechanism from the male's point of view because there's just no potential for retaliation from the female. In situations where you have where you have individuals that are equal in power, punishment might actually be quite risky because you, if you punish someone and they're equal in strength to you, they might just turn around and retaliate, and that makes that makes the whole interaction very costly. This power, this asymmetrical power relationship between the male cleaner Ross and the female, is what makes punishment such an efficient cooperation enforcing mechanism. And this is interesting because it turns out that there aren't really many other species who use punishment so readily as the cleaner Ross. Well, of course, besides us. Punishment seems to be not that widely used as a cooperation enforcing mechanism outside humans. So cleaners are quite unusual in that regard because they routinely use punishment to make partners do what they want them to do. A lot of the underlying features of the two systems are quite similar, albeit the clean fish is obviously a much simpler model. back to the first seven inch of this stuff that I bought when I was in high school, which was this Heavens to Betsy seven inch that had its own title. Four songs on the seven inch, but the seven inch got its own title, which was called These Monsters Are Real. I think the song itself was only called Monsters, although the chorus went, doon, 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 these monsters, doon, 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 are real, doon, doon, these are monsters, doon, doon, I can feel. And it's also just this great song because it ends with maybe one of the like longest unbroken stretches of screaming ever to be in a three minute pop song. In the 1990s, bands like Heavens to Betsy and Bikini Kill took to the stage with a full-on message of female empowerment. They called themselves Riot Girls. But just as coverage went mainstream, USA Today, Newsweek, the scene famously imploded. Sarah Marcus is the author of Girls to the Front, the true story of the Riot Girl Revolution. And she says that implosion is more part of the story rather than end of the story. The story of Riot Girl is a story of young women creating something very valuable to them and then seeing the story told back to them in distorted ways that made them feel crappy about this thing that had felt amazing. You know, this wasn't that long ago. And I can't help but notice that an argument over whether an article in Newsweek is bad for your scene is totally absurd now. I found Riot Girl by reading the Newsweek article. 
Kids today aren't finding it through Newsweek. Kids today are finding it because an article on Portlandia says Carrie Brownstein came out of the riot girl feminist punk scene. And they go to their computer and they Google riot girl feminist punk scene. They get Wikipedia. They, God willing, get my book. You know, they get Slater Kinney. And then I've seen girls at rock camps who, you know, were into Slater Kinney, went to Google. And then they were like, oh, Corin Tucker had this band called Heavens to Betsy. And next thing you know, they're listening to the 7-inch that it took me five months to find at, like, a DIY punk anarchist info shop in Washington, D.C. in the spring of 11th grade. Like, they just get it. They, like, download the torrent or whatever the hell they do. Pretty much everyone who was a riot girl makes an appearance in Sarah Marcus's book, But collectively, these stories show us another side to DIY punk rock. I believe that Riot Grrrl was a vehicle created to bring the values of DIY to a broader audience of young women. I think that there were certain female artists, musicians, who were in very um, permissive, supportive DIY communities, especially in Olympia and Washington, D.C., who saw how the idea of just make whatever you have start from what you know, these skills and these values and these exhortations are exactly what teenage girls so deep in doubting the value of what they have to put out into the world can use to um, like create community, do it with others, do it for others, listen to each other. You know, the, the phrase find their voice is so overused and it's become a cliche, but it is, you know, it is about how do you, how do you find a way to stop doubting what's good in you long enough to just get it the heck out of your mouth. And I think that it's a starting point for a wide range of cultural production, you know? This, this stuff has legs. The Riot Girls were sometimes referred to as sister groups to bands like Nirvana and the Nation of Ulysses. And really, when it comes to DIY bedrock philosophy, they did kind of see the world the same way. But the Riot Girls were also committed third-wave feminists. And this commitment to female empowerment sometimes caused problems. I don't think that there were tensions between a DIY philosophy and a feminist philosophy. I think there were tensions between communities where men were used to not being challenged and women who wanted to challenge them. Today, female artists wield considerable power in popular music. And while Sarah Marcus won't outright credit Riot Girl for this, she does believe that the movement was an incredible catalyst. And this is why she resists a narrative that would put an end to the Riot Girl story. I really do believe that what happened, which was the media caught onto it and spread the idea that this existed, but Riot Girl itself, the people involved, didn't get their ideas watered down, never went mainstream themselves, meant that there was this cryptic, treasure map saying there's something over here and we're not going to tell you just what it is. I mean, because the idea itself was always and crucially like something that was going to be a catalyst and not like an ongoing way of life, they're finding something that's pretty uncorrupted I'm not sure what else it could have done by going on longer except make more people dislike each other.
when I came to graduate school, when I came to New York, I had it all planned out. Um, I was going to write the seminal, the enduring text on Foucault's concept of power. When David arrived at NYU, he was determined to make it big. He figured it would just take him a few years to become a famous scholar, an expert on the work of the French philosopher Michel Foucault. But he made that move from San Francisco 13 years ago. He still hasn't finished his PhD. It's called Alba Dissertation, ABD. David is a fixture at a bar in my neighborhood, like an every night fixture. For the past eight years, every time I've gone into this bar, he's been there, sitting by the door, nursing a Budweiser, and eating some scary-looking giant sandwich. Finally, the other night, my curiosity got the better of me, and I walked up to him and said, Hey man, what is it with the sandwiches? It turns out that David has a day job at the NYU faculty lounge, which means free sandwiches. Now, 13 years is an incredible amount of time to be stuck in grad school. So I asked David if I could get him to share his story with me. So we bought a couple of beers and went back to my apartment. The first thing I would ask you is if we could go back in time and, you know, ambush the you of 13 years ago, like, what would you say to yourself? Don't go to NYU. (laughs) Okay, so the reason David went to NYU was because he wanted to study with a famous Foucault scholar. There's this guy, Pasquale Paschino, and he had done this great interview with Foucault decades ago. And I really felt as if he was looking at Foucault the same way that I was and that I was going to be able to write the dissertation on Foucault that would become the book that would make me famous. Unfortunately, things didn't go according to plan. Pasquale Paschino and I did not get along. He believes that Neapolitan, with a thin, slightly charred crust underneath, is really the only pizza worth eating. And um, I happen to like Sicilian pizza, preferably with a whole grain crust, because that's what I used to get back in San Francisco. So one of the reasons I've been in graduate school for 13 years is because Pasquale Paschino does not like Sicilian pizza. David eventually got over his failure of a pizza party And he scored himself a new advisor, his fourth choice, a man he now calls Dr. X. That's what I call him when I talk to my parents on the phone. In fact, New York University has told me that uh, if I mention his name one more time on my blog or on Facebook or on Twitter, Tumblr, they will expel me. So I I don't want to say his name on this radio piece. Suffice it to say that he's a well-known Foucault scholar. He's not as well-known as Pasquale Paschino. All told, though, we had a good working relationship. You know, I did his laundry, babysat his kids, and, well, taught his courses. And I never felt exploited because I knew that with his rubber stamp, I was going to make it to the next level. David's relationship with his advisor went south when a couple months ago, Dr. X dropped a bombshell on him. 
He told me that he was going to retire. Retire to this little town in Supercon in the south of France on the Riviera, some town I'd never heard of. And do you know that, well, it's hard to describe what happens when an advisor retires. It's as if you reset everything back to the very beginning. So I was displeased, to say the least. Um, anhedonic, I felt some malaise. I may have been slightly suicidal. So I decided to deal with this in uh, the way that I think that Foucault would have dealt with it. I went to a party. It so happened that my friend from the biochem department was graduating. And uh, their department was having a party for their graduating PhD students. In my department, the funding for the parties is so scant. You know, you have these little crappy cubes of cheese that somebody bought from not even Whole Foods. Um, the wine comes out of a box. Here, oh God, it's just, you know, people are expensively dressed, which honestly you don't expect to see in the sciences, but they can afford to, so they do. And the wine is actually nice, and the food is, you know, it's baked brie, and there were actually people standing behind the food serving it to you. There were no cheese cubes. And then it hit me. I've been doing this all wrong. I had this blinding flash of light. I realized that I could actually change the world by dropping out of graduate school and writing a self-help book using Foucault's laws of power to help people help themselves. And it would be called The Web of Power. David says that his book will complement other how-to guides like Robert Greene's The 48 Laws of Power and Neil Strauss's The Game. But his book, he says, will stand out because it will be based on real philosophy. Using the works of Michel Foucault, I want to show that people who think that they don't have power do. Foucault always knew that people without power have power too. Power is a web. Is web really the right metaphor here? It's probably not entirely accurate, but yeah, it's a web. Okay. Um, so I, I get that this is, you know, uh, a new thing, but it does seem that if you are going to go for this, you do have a lot to draw on. I mean, you do have 13 years of scholarship, 13 years of research on Foucault and power to draw on. You know, the way that I see it, in order to write the web of power, I need to embrace the World Wide Web. My book will make a great app on Nook. You just lost me. I need to embrace the technology. <laughs> and ha how? Foucault wiki quotes. 
Knowledge is not for knowing. Knowledge is for cutting. Where there is power, there is resistance. Sexuality is far more one of the positive products of power than power was ever repressive of sex. If power were never anything but repressive, if it never did anything but to say no, do you really think one would be brought to obey it? What makes power hold good, what makes it accepted, is simply the fact that it doesn't only weigh on us as a force that says no. It also traverses and produces things. It induces pleasure, forms knowledge, produces discourse. I'm going to use that one because 21 people liked it on WikiQuotes. itself it's not that difficult to explain because I uh, the way I see it the, the core its core meaning just is to be able to cause effects to be causally efficacious and it is actually quite easy to see how as long as we exist really we cannot avoid constantly causing different kind of effects and that's an age-old intuition actually in philosophy that uh, the mark of real being is power. Valtteri Valenin lectures on philosophical theories of power at the University of Turku, Finland. He wrote his dissertation on Spinoza's metaphysics, and recently Cambridge University Press published his first book, Spinoza's Geometry of Power. Spinoza is one of the uh, three great rationalists. So first there was René Descartes, and then Spinoza, and then Leibniz. He's well known uh, for his uh, main work, The Ethics, which is uh, presented or written in a geometrical manner. But its, its aim is, is clearly ethical. The aim is to discern the nature of reality uh, and human existence in order to show us how to lead a happy and fulfilling life. Spinoza thinks that the ethical goal is to become as self-determined as possible. Uh, being self-determined equals existing uh, as determined by one's own nature or essence alone. So that one has one one has only those uh, states uh, uh, that follow from one's own essence. And this is not. I mean, we are never completely self-determined. We are always under the influence of external causes. This is. This, are, this is the human condition. We are just a um, small part of a, an infinite universe and uh, we cannot escape being uh, pushed <laughs> pushed over or, 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 or being affected by external causes all the time. And now the external causes keep us from attaining that state. We can never completely attain that state. But we can come closer uh, to that, that maximally self-determined uh, or completely self-determined position. And uh, actually, the whole book, The Ethics, is written in order to help us in, in doing that. 
there are two fundamental principles at work in Spinoza. Real existence, anything that really exists, requires a certain kind of power. I mean, I'd have to, I have to push uh, air molecules away from where I am and, and so forth. Uh, and then secondly, there is the age-old idea that any individual's existence is a somewhat complex affair in the sense that there are certain features that make the thing what it is. And that uh, traditionally, as for Spinoza, uh, was called the essence of the thing. And with that essence, with those constitutive uh, features, come many different kinds of properties, other, uh, other features which are not as fundamental to us, but which we still do have. So the uh, traditional example uh, of a property or a quality that comes with, uh, the, with being a human being, with being a rational animal, is the capacity to laughter or, or sense of humor. So now, sense of humor does not belong to the essence of being a human, but one cannot be a human without having a sense of humor. Maybe one would say, I mean, put the Aristotelian position like that. So it's, it's a property that one has uh, in virtue of one's, one's essence or nature. So how do we get to geometry then? For Spinoza, geometrical figures are the exemplary cases of things. Uh, I think that uh, he holds them in high regard because they allow us to see how something can have essential features. For instance, a triangle can be defined as a closed plane figure formed by three intersecting lines. And uh, given those constitutive features, certain necessary properties, for instance, the property of having the sum of in internal angles equaling to two right angles. He believes or, or thinks that there we can see as clearly as possible the kind of internal structure that any thing, any individual is end up with. It's as if Spinoza's God were a super really existing super triangle, and we would be that entity's properties. So I'm a property of God or nature, and you are a property of God or nature. A little bit like a right angle triangle has at least the property of fulfilling the Pythagorean theorem and the property of having the sum of internal angles that equal two right angles. So what Spinoza thinks is that each of us has certain uh, essential features and uh, existing as determined by those features alone, that would be a completely active uh, state and, and joyous state. Now we are kept from being that way and we are being influenced by external causes so that our essence becomes constituted in many different ways. It's, it's, uh, maybe one could say that it's being kept from attaining its optimal state. And now when, when we go further away from that optimal state or self-determined state, uh, we are still being ourselves 
uh, at least normally, I mean, unless we cease to exist. And uh, we have many properties that we did not have before. Uh, when we are being changed further away from that, uh, from the optimal uh, situation, we feel sorrow. And uh, when we attain a, a state or a constitution that is closer to that uh, self-determined state, then we feel joy. So essentially it's a self-realization doctrine, according to which each of one should uh, be as determined as, as we would be determined by what is innermost to ourselves alone. That is the, the, the task and the challenge. And now the question is, how, how, to, how to talk about this kind of uh, changes in our existential condition, if one put it like that? I think it's, it's quite usual to depict uh, our existence or our state in dynamic terms. So, I mean, you could say that I don't have resources to do anything. I mean, for instance, if somebody is depressed, I mean, say, I mean, I just can't do it. I mean, and, and when when uh, when somebody experiences a high level of self-realization, for instance, while while uh, creating something, uh, then one could say that, you know, I mean, I'm feeling very powerful and do stuff and, and so forth. So I mean, these things, they, I mean, it's, it's not that strange at all. Uh, so we tend to uh, speak about our, our state uh, status in, in these terms. It is quite another matter to come up with an elaborate doctrine uh, that describes human existence in dynamic terms. And this is actually what Spinoza uh, manages to offer us the, the state we we find ourselves in and what we feel is determined by interactions of powers and the notion of power in itself has this aspect of resiliency of, of striving against of exerting oneself against opposition uh, against things that that hinder us we, we cannot but but use all of our power, uh, exercise fully uh, our power to be in a, in a self-determined state. Today, almost all talk about self-actualization focuses on the internet. We are told time and time again that the internet offers us so much data, so much information about the world that we individuals now have the ability, or rather the freedom, to choose not only what we want to see, what we want to do, where we want to go, but even who we want to be. Well, according to Joe Turo, this idea that power resides with the individual is, well, rubbish. In his new book, The Daily You, he reveals that it's advertising and marketing that holds the real power, not only in regards to the internet and the media. For Joe Turo, 
advertising now decides what we see, what we do, where we go, and who we are. If you look under the hood, you see that the powers that be that are aggregating and pushing are not the powers of the individual, but rather the, the advertisers and the big media companies that are working to use these data so that they can move us in the directions they want to move us. And we are oblivious to this. One of the things here that, that you're suggesting is becoming more aware of advertising and marketers themselves. You, you, one of the points of entry for you is media buying. Can you just tell, and you give us this great rich history of this particular branch of the advertising industry, but what is it that you feel we need to know about the history of media buying to understand how it works today? The reason certain ads are chosen for certain publishers and not for other publishers have to do with what's called media buying and planning. It's a basic process. The idea simply is uh, where should we put our money for our clients? If we have a soap manufacturer, should we go with TV? Should we go with magazines? If we go with TV, what networks, what channels, what shows? Okay, that sounds really basic. And for decades, it was so basic that it was among the lowest paying part of the advertising industry. In the last 20 years, what has happened is a transformation in media buying and media planning so that it has become digital and statistical to the point that they're hiring computer specialists, probabilistic thinkers, and statisticians at the core of these companies. And the goal is to try to figure out how to reach the people they want to reach wherever those people are, whatever medium they're at. After media buying transformed the advertising industry, the statisticians set their sights on the internet. Joe Turo credits this new breed of advertisers and marketers with the invention of one of the most important building blocks of the internet, the cookie. This is probably one of the most important inventions of the 20th century. We don't tend to think about it. Most people know the word cookie. They're not quite sure what it is. It's, it's kind of basic. It's a, it's a piece of text that's put inside your computer that relates to a particular browser like Internet Explorer or, or uh, uh, Firefox. And what it does is simply hold a relationship between you and another company, marketer, or, uh, or website, so they know next time you come to them or that they come to you that, that you've been there and they have some information that they put into that cookie about you. Um, and that idea evolved in the mid-90s based upon uh, marketers' uh, websites saying to Netscape, we need a way to recognize the people who come to our sites. We can't sell people more than one item at a time if we can't recognize who they are. So the people at Netscape, two people in particular, created this cookie in order to do that. And once the cookie was created, all these interesting issues came up in the mid-late 90s about how should we track people? What should the cookie do or not do? Uh, should every company have access to any cookie? And they made decisions which have had enormous impact upon the way we do the media Okay, uh, internet, online, even mobile media to this day. And so once you have the cookie as a dominant mode of tracking people, uh, this begins to explode in terms of its implications. And there are sort of offshoots to cookies, tags and, and pixels and tr what's called tracking pixels that can actually look at what you're looking at on a page. And in 
sometimes what happens is companies then will actually match cookies with other cookies. So there is a technology that they've developed it, that allows you to say, uh, does this person who's come to this site uh, have a cookie from this company? And if they have a cookie from this company, then we can share uh, what the site knows about you with what the cookie of that other company has. And sometimes, say, a Procter & Gamble cookie might share information with a Blue Kai cookie on a particular site so that the, the, uh, the companies can add information to one another. And they're, they're also selling this. I mean, there are businesses that have sprung up that are based on the trading and selling of, exactly. this, of this information. Can you right, just- trading and selling of information that they gathered online connected to cookies, but also that they gather offline. And so sometimes they will give information about people that they've bought from offline companies like uh, Axiom or Experian. And sometimes those data are scrubbed with, you know, they'll take out the personally identifiable information, and sometimes they won't. Yeah, but, you know, there are some marketers that you speak to that recognize that this is sort of an arms race, you know, Google mm-hmm. just changing its privacy policy in order to keep up. I mean, it did not use to aggregate the data that you use from different right. services, but, you know, you could make the case that they have to now in order to compete with like what Twitter and Facebook is doing. And it is like an arms race. You quote a few marketers who talk with as being alarmed at this is sort of seeing that the consumer ends up being traded like a pork belly. But yes. why do they, how are they not right? And why do they seem to be losing the argument? Because it's business. I mean, it's competition. It's um, if you look at, uh, again, for, even from the Obama administration standpoint, if you look at where the U.S. is leading now in industry, it's certainly not in many kinds of manufacturing. Uh, what are the stellar companies that stand out on the world stage? We're talking Google. We're talking Facebook. Perhaps even Yahoo today. Certainly people talk about Twitter, though it's not making a heck of a lot of money. But, but the digital world and marketing in the digital world is one of the success stories within the American economic firmament. And so uh, it's, it's very difficult for, for people in power to say, we're going to give that up, all right? And so that's where a lot of the tension happens. You know, what, uh, a lot of people recognize the issues you've just mentioned, but at the same time they recognize that uh, supposedly this powers um, a, a certain segment of the U.S. economy. Now, how many people can really get jobs in this is another story. Uh, most Americans don't have the um, computer science or uh, algorithmic ability to work for Google or for Yahoo from that standpoint. But certainly the stocks go up high and people make money from that. One of the threads that I've been following on my program is the relationship between advertising and content and how it's been changing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in other words, advertising becomes less and less interested in underwriting content. It would rather make its own. We're seeing, you know, like the Pepsi magazine rather than Pepsi yes. taking out mag- – well, why do that when you can make your own ch- video channel? Hundreds of brands are right now experimenting with making original branded content. But you have this mind-blowing, for me at least, quote from this ad executive that you speak with who flat out tells you that marketers have only underwritten content because they were forced to. They never actually wanted to do it from day one. 
Yeah, well, the feeling is, and it's kind of interesting, he actually puts it in quite stark terms. We have built, he says, um, a, um, an empire. We've been several empires, big, tall buildings for these major uh, media firms. And it's all because advertisers have been paying. So he's looking from the standpoint of his clients, and he's saying, why have we spent all this money to aggrandize CBS and Hearst and uh, you know, uh, NBC? Instead, he says, we should figure out ways to do this ourselves or to force them to charge us a lot less money so that literally the only money we'd be paying for is the, the incremental cost to reach the next viewer. So as you point out, one of the ways to do this is create what advertisers called owned media. There's three types of media people use today in the discourse of the industry. There's paid media, there's owned media, there's earned media. Uh, paid media is the traditional advertising. Owned media is, as you point out, the various sites, the various ways, magazines that companies develop on their own and try to create buzz around them. And earned media is the kind of public relations buzz that gets started by companies. So they're hoping that earned media and owned media become engines in themselves that diminishes their need to some extent for paid media. So we're moving into an era where the credibility of the publisher is at risk here. And advertisers are driving that problem. And what I've said to advertisers in meetings that I've been with them, like at conferences, and I don't have an easy answer for this, but I said, you have to confront the fact that you guys are shaping the future of American media. What you guys do will have implications for the kinds of news and entertainment and information that people receive. And it may have been a late, you may have been thinking in the past that this is laissez faire, you just do your work and the media happen. But, but it really, what you guys do shape the worlds that we confront. Yeah, but you know, I don't know exactly if they're like sitting around thinking on, on how to make this better. I mean, you have this, no. one of my favorite lines here is that you say that this was, we should think of the last decade as like the Spanish Civil War, a mm -hmm. testing ground for new weapons and new ideas before the unleashing of the real battle. What do you mean by this? Yes, the Spanish Civil War uh, took place in the mid-1930s, and uh, it, was, it was a time where the Germans and uh, uh, some of the uh, sort of what became the allies were testing out weapons to see new weapons that later would be used in World War II. Um, I see the Internet as we know it today as a landscape where companies are testing out digital products to reach people, to name people, to segment people, which they will use in where I think the ultimate battle is going to happen, which is what we call television. My sense of television in the future is going to be this. You'll turn on the TV. It's not going to be a channel. You won't see a channel. What you'll see is an intelligent navigator, meaning it'll say, hi, Joe Turo. Here are 15 things we think you would be interested in today to watch, okay, tonight, meaning because I just got home from work. And uh, those 15 things will be a combination of tracking what I've done over the last year, sort of knowing what I'm watching. It will be based upon advertisers who want to reach me and they will pay for some video on demand that they won't pay for you, Benjamin, because they want to reach me and not you. And maybe the news programs will be different because it will be not that difficult to change the news stories 
based upon what they think I care about and uh, what I click on. But when I see a Middle East story, I may click on the ads more frequently than when I don't see a Middle East story. They're going to start loading me onto Middle East stories because uh, advertisers know that I'm going to click more. This episode of Too Much Information is called Power. It featured Joe Turo, Mitch Epstein, Dr. Valtteri Vilhari, Sarah Marcus, and Dave. It was produced by myself, Benjamin Walker, with Bill Bowen, Sylvie Kovnat, and Laura Mayer. Special thanks to Robert Hine and Kara Oler. There's a lot more information, including photos and links, at the TMI playlist page at WFMU.org. And that's where you can subscribe to the TMI podcast.